The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Mark's Gospel again. We're going to be in chapter uh, 10. We're going to be in verses 32 through 45. Uh, The title of tonight's Bible study is Crosses and Cups. Crosses and Cups. And we'll be in uh, going through verses 32 through 45. But, but just as a, as a way of introduction, Jesus and his disciples are on the road. Um, they're not going to stay anywhere any amount of time again together. Uh, yes, they're going to Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, they're, they're near Jericho. They're approaching Jericho. And the floor of the Jordan Valley is 846 uh, feet below sea level. If you can imagine going from Jerusalem when we go in our buses down towards Jericho and then the Dead Sea and Qumran and Masada and all that's out in that area. You can see to the east uh, uh, Jordan and the plateaus there that in biblical times would have been Moab. But they're on the road. They're, they're making their way. And, and, and that's the setting for what we're going to look at tonight. Crosses and cups. Crosses and cups speaks of the suffering that not only Jesus would experience, but also those who follow him will experience as well. In verse 32, as we go through our passage tonight, you're going to see the words going up to Jerusalem. And this captures the elevation change. If you can imagine walking and walking and, and uh, you know, the, the road is, is serpentine as it goes back and forth. As a matter of fact, when Jesus tells the parable of the, of the Good Samaritan, it's on this particular road where bandits would hide out around the sharp turns, uh, catching people unexpectedly and robbing them. So they're moving up. Not yet, but they will be moving up. But this is the, their mindset. But I also want you to know that going up also has a spiritual bent to it. And it would all the way back into the Old Testament that wherever you came in Israel, for whatever direction, for whatever feast, whatever purpose brought you to Jerusalem, you would find yourself ascending. You would find yourself moving up. And the spiritual significance is that you're going to temple. You're going to temple. And in the Jewish mind, temple is where God was. It's where God was worshipped. It's where sacrifices were offered to God. As a matter of fact, in the Holy of Holies, where only the priests would go in one time a year, is where the presence of God would be. And so then there would be this moving up. And we know that there were three feasts that uh, Jewish men were required to be in Jerusalem for. And so as they would make their way for these feasts, if you, uh, as you read through the book of Psalms, you'll find a collection of Psalms, uh, 120 to 134, that are called the Psalms of Ascent, the Songs of Ascent. And, and tradition tells us that the priests themselves within Jerusalem, as they were making their way up to the temple, they would sing these songs. But can you imagine if you were traveling some distance from, from the north, from the Galilee, or from the, from the coast, from, from uh, uh, Joppa, as you were making your way to Jerusalem, you with your family and friends would begin to, in anticipation of coming to the city, begin to sing these psalms together. It's almost as though you're preparing your heart as you make the elevation changes, as the terrain changes around you. You're preparing your heart to be in the presence of God. 
And that is where we're heading with Jesus and his disciples. As he and his disciples head in this direction because of Passover pilgrims, other people are joining them to observe the Passover. But what they don't know is that at this particular Passover, Jesus will be the sacrifice Passover lamb to which all other Passover lambs pointed to, that there would be a lamb who would come and there would be the lamb of God, as John the Baptist declared him to be, who when he died, his death, his blood, his life would take away the sins of the world. That's where we're going. That's what we're doing. Now, it's important for you to know this evening that the disciples are conflicted. They're bothered by Jesus' references to his death because they have this aspiration to rule in his kingdom. And what we have are two very different perspectives. We have Jesus' perspective of moving in the direction of the cross, and we have the disciples' perspective of moving in the direction of power and authority. And our gospels hold up the, con the contrast between the two. What the disciples don't know is that following Jesus means living with crosses and with cups. Danny, what do you mean about crosses? Well, there's a lot to be said about the cross. A lot has been said. A lot has been written. But we know that the cross was the Roman form of execution. If the Jews were to follow the Old Testament and somebody needed to be executed, was required to be executed, the method would be stoning. But the Romans' domination of the land at this time required crosses. It's important for us to know tonight that Jesus might not always give us the life we want, but he certainly gives us the life that we desperately need. And if you follow Jesus, you will know the cross, not only for the forgiveness of your sin, but because you associate with Jesus, that because of the world that we live in, the spiritual dynamics around us, we will experience the cross. Let me, let me read to you from Matthew's gospel where Jesus describes what it's like to follow him. As a matter of fact, Matthew 16, verse 24, you know this verse. You've heard this verse before. If anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me, remember Jesus calling the disciples, follow me, come after me, follow after my path. Allow me to guide you. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. That's an aspect of the cross, my friends, tonight. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, specific to the individual, and follow me. By identifying with Jesus in his death, we receive life eternal. There's an exchange. There's something that's very real if you follow Jesus, that as you follow him and he calls you to obedience and to say no to things like the flesh, the world, and the devil, that you receive a quality of life. It doesn't mean that it's easy, but the quality of life is, is ruled by peace. More than living forever or being on the winning team, which I sometimes sense in evangelical Christianity in America, the cross redeems us from death to be sure. But this evening, hear me say that the cross also redeems us from the power of sin. From the power of sin. If I look back on my life, it hasn't been all that long, but I see God over a period of time, sanctifying or working in my life 
to cause sin to slowly fall away. We're seeing this now. If you go over on this side of the building, there's the preschool. The cutest little kids in the world. And I think they're especially cute because when they cry, somebody else takes care of them. So you can kind of, it's like window shopping. You can appreciate them from the distance. Probably you're not going to buy one and take it home. But you hear them out there laughing, and then they stumble and they fall. But if you stand out there in my office, you look directly to the north. There is a liquid amber tree. And in July, when it's scorching hot around here, right? San Diego, right? Scorching hot. Scorching hot. I look at that tree, and I see at the very, very top, the leaves are starting to barely turn yellow. And I grab one of the preschool teachers who's running around here. I go, come here, come here, come here. And they come over and I go, see that tree? Yeah. I go, it's telling me that fall is on the way. And I mean, we got perspiration coming down you and you can't wait to get into air conditioning. And she says, really? And I go, yeah. A couple weeks later, there's a little more yellow and a little more yellow. You know that today, if you go out there and look at it, it's almost red. It's almost red. Why? Because the leaves are going to begin to fall soon. I, know, I tell them all the time. That liquid amber tree is beautiful, especially in somebody else's yard, because when the leaves fall, they have to rake them up. You don't. And I believe that the same is true, that as we follow Jesus, that those strongholds in our lives, those places in our lives where the enemy has had over a period of time strength, they begin to like those leaves. I tell you with all certainty, one day they will all be gone. That sin begins to fall by the wayside. Granted, we have to make decisions at times. We have to cry out to God for help at times. But as you hold hands with Jesus and as you walk with him, my friends, he is so committed to you that he will work in your heart and your mind and sin will fall away. That's what I mean by the cross. Listen to Paul's perspective from Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 6. For we know that our old self was crucified. That is, when we came to Jesus... Our old life, our old man, our old nature was crucified. Past tense, it was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer, listen to these words, no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. My friends, this evening as we look at the cross and the cup, the power to resist sin comes by the Spirit. It comes by the Spirit who indwells you, who lives in you, is committed to changing you into the image of Christ Jesus, but it also comes by the Word. Remember Jesus coming to John the Baptist, and John takes him in the River Jordan, and he bows, takes him down into the water, I believe full immersion. Ah, you're a Presbyterian, maybe you say, ah, he's got him nice and wet. It doesn't matter. He goes down into the water, and as he comes out of the water, what happened? It says that the heavens were open, that the Spirit, like a dove, or as a dove, came down, lit down, and rested upon him, and out of the heavens came the words from the Father, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. There was the baptism there was the glory of the baptism, the glory of the experience. John the Baptist, having baptized likely thousands and thousands of people, sees that this one is unique, this one is special. Well, he was his cousin, right? But this one was very different. And all of the glory 
all the glory of the moment. Listen. And then from the baptism, Jesus, by that same spirit, is driven into the wilderness to do battle. The church must realize that when we are baptized by the Spirit, then we are by the Spirit immediately sent into the world to do battle. And because of the cross, we have victory. We have victory. We have God's Word, God's Spirit. And the battle many times for you and I is to follow Jesus and to surrender to His will. To surrender to His will. On the screen, you'll see a, a, a quote where it says, we fight, we do battle, we do, we battle temptation to become in practice who we are in Christ. We fight to become in practice, or the way we live our lives, who we are in Christ. And that, my friends, is being worked in us, and it's being worked through us. And God is committed, God is committed for us to be completed in the battle. Secondly, I want to talk about cups. The word cup here is metaphor, and it's metaphor for suffering. Jesus' suffering was exemplified through his obedience in the darkness of Gethsemane's garden. You remember the story. They, they have the glorious night in Jerusalem, the Last Supper, the, the washing of the feet, the, the breaking of the bread, and the drinking of the wine. They sing a hymn, and then the disciples, it's in the middle of the night, they make their way down through the Kidron Valley over into the Mount, uh, the Mount of Olives, and there they come in to Gethsemane's garden. And Jesus leaves some of the disciples at the entrance, and then he moves deeper into the garden with his, with his three intimate uh, disciples, Peter, James, and John. And then they say, even then, he moves deeper into the garden, and they hear him cry out in the night as he wrestles with what? was surrendering his will to the Father's will regarding what? The cup. The cup connected to his suffering. It's important for us to know that this is something that Adam failed to do in Eden's glory. Adam, with all that was given to him, all that was given to him, his stewardship over creation, him having the opportunity to name the animals. I know that sounds silly to you, but it's amazing to me that God would say, I want you to name the animals. You know, I, I want you to show your dominion. I want you to show your power. I want you to show the position by actually naming each of the animals. I want you to take care of steward the garden. And yet in all that God gave Adam, he fails. He stumbles. In all that God gave Jesus, Jesus succeeded. He's, in, he's victorious. Long, a little before the cross, my friends, in the garden, and the reason I want you to understand the victory and the contrast of the two is because you and I, like Adam, we stumble. Some of us, yours truly, stumble regularly. But because Jesus was victorious in, in, in the darkness of the night, he gives to us the power and the strength to say no when tempted as Adam was tempted. Jesus chose to drink the cup of God's wrath or his anger that our sin incurred, and he did so in our place. But don't see sheer grit or determination. I want you to see Jesus' love first for the Father and then for you. Let me say that again. I want you to see love exemplified in the garden at, the, at, at being willing to take the cup of wrath, to drink the cup of wrath, as an expression of his love for you and an encouragement that when you struggle with sin, that he will be there with you. He was abandoned by all, 
but he will never abandon you. Didn't he tell his disciples, I will never leave you, I'll never forsake you. I will be with you even until the end of the age. Jesus gives us strength in our battle with sin. The writer of Hebrews says in verse 4, in your struggle against sin, in your battle against sin, in your battle against temptation, when you come up against it, in your struggle, struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And remember that Jesus, in, in that moment, did shed blood prior to the cross in his anguish, in his depression, in the, the stress of the moment. He, he did not sin. The cup, cup represents the following. Unimaginable suffering. Beyond any human being's comprehension, Jesus suffered. Beyond any human being's comprehension, beyond the human language, did he suffer for us. The other thing that a cup represents is God's incomprehensible love. Again, beyond our grasp to know tonight that you, my friend, are loved. You are not alone. That in your struggle against sin, and even when you don't struggle, that Jesus knows, he understands. This is what makes him the perfect high priest who can represent you before the Father. But he doesn't only represent us before the Father. He represents us before the accuser. Before the one who says, you don't do enough. You stumbled again. You keep asking for forgiveness again and again for this sin. And Jesus stands up and commands him to be silent and says, but I have died for that sin. I will answer for that sin. So we have unimaginable suffering, God's incomprehensible love. And then lastly, and I'll talk a little bit more about this in a minute, just maybe a minute or two, the son's eternal example. The son's eternal example. So Gethsemane, the olive press, is where Jesus spoke these words of life. And these words are a secret for you and for me. We're in the midst of his struggle with the cup of suffering. He cries out in the, in the anguish of the garden, yet not my will, yet not what I want to be done. Father, your will be done. And that, my friends, is the secret. That is the secret in the moment of experiencing the cup. Jarrett Scott Dawson describes it like this. On the screen, you'll see his quote. Jesus passed through death and hell that we might pass over both safely. I'm going to read that again. Jesus himself, God in the flesh, passed over death and hell that we might pass over both safely. If you struggle, if you do battle against sin, you know the cross. You know the cups. Now, just a minute ago, I said that I would deal with Jesus' eternal example. Listen to this from Revelation 5, verse 6. And John is in heaven. Now, we know that John was a close friend of Jesus, at least for the three years. That he's probably one of the younger disciples, called with his with his brother James. And, and, and John, of all the disciples, tradition tells us, outlived them all. They were martyred. They died. And yet he would find himself on the island of Patmos, 
On the Lord's day, he would uh, be worshiping God and have a vision. And this is one of the ways that he described being caught up into heaven, being in heaven, seeing heaven. And he said, listen to this, I saw a lamb standing. There are many references to Jesus in heaven, and usually it's that he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, a position and place of authority and of ministry. But John, on this particular moment, says, I saw a lamb, capital M, a lamb standing. Listen to these words when we talk about Jesus' eternal example. As though it had been slain. And the reason I brought up earlier John's intimacy with Christ is because he sees him in a very different way in heaven. He sees them as a sacrifice that is eternal, not passing, not weak, not to be offered again and again and again. My friends, he was offered once. He was offered for all. I saw a lamb as though it had been slain. Tonight, Jesus' eternal example speaks to us. That when we're tempted to sin, we are to remember the cross, we're to remember the cup. Sin promises us life but delivers death. Jesus gives us life because he embraced our death, breaking sin's power. And when we see him in heaven, one aspect of how we will see him is the eternal sacrifice who takes away sin. He takes away our sin. And I believe, I don't know about you, but I believe that's a great motivation for us to turn to him in our moment of weakness. So tonight we have the king on the cross, verses 32 through 34. Allow me to read. It says, and they were on the road, and here are those words going up to Jerusalem, moving in the direction of Jerusalem, no longer to be in Galilee, no longer to be over on the coastlands, no longer to be in the Jordan Valley. They're moving toward Jerusalem, the city of David, the ancient city, the city to which all eyes looked, all hearts turned. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. Scholars tell us that this was the posture. This was if you encountered a rabbi with his students, that you would first encounter the rabbi with his cloak, his outward cloak, that signified him as a teacher of the law, that signified him as a religious leader. And then at some distance, he would have his students who would be following him. But make, make, no, <clears throat> make no mistake, he is choosing where they're going. He is leading, they are following. And it goes on to say in verse 32, and they were amazed. The idea here is that they were fearful. And then those who followed were afraid, literally terrified. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was about to happen to him, saying, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days... He will rise. Speaking of the resurrection. When you see the title, Son of Man, I want you to think of Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel sees a vision, and he calls the one who's coming, who's descending, as God in the flesh, and he refers to him as the Son of Man. Jesus refers to himself more as the Son of Man than any other title in the Gospels. But I want you to see here in verse 32 his determination 
His determination. That is that no one and nothing will stop him from his appointment in Jerusalem. Is it to observe the Passover? It is, but it is again to be the Passover lamb. Hear me this. Hear me tonight. Jesus will not be crucified because his plans went wrong. This is not a tragedy. This is the plan of God from the beginning when man fell in the garden. This is the plan. This is not a mistake. Verse 32 again says that he was walking before him, them, that is the disciples. And then we read of their response to Jesus' demeanor, to, to his, they, they knew that something was different about him. They knew that there was an intensity and a focus. When it says they, the disciples were amazed, and they, and those that would speak of others that were following along, um, were afraid. This is, the, this is the attitude in the group. Something is wrong. Something's going on. I want you to think that as other groups of people traveled for Passover observance expectantly, that the disciples do so hesitantly. Jesus being cross-focused cross troubled them. And I wonder if we, as we leave here tonight, we would stop and we would consider before we go home and have a bite or go home or prepare for bed, especially because of the time change. Listen, is that sometimes Jesus leads us to Jerusalem and that sometimes Jesus leads us to a cross so that, so that a work might be done deeply within us that just like his eternal example will last for all of eternity, Jesus leads them where they don't want to go. Verse 33, he says, The Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and the scribes. This is prophecy. This is Jesus telling his disciples what's about to happen. He's attempting to, to, to protect them, to, to tell them in advance so that in the future they would understand in the moment, they wouldn't understand, but he knew that in the future, in the coming of the Holy Spirit, as they began to preach the gospel, that there would be a confidence that this was a plan of God to save the world. And with the anointing of the Spirit and the gospel would go forth around the Roman Empire, oh, my friends, so much so that it is here today. And that it continues to go out around the world. And it continues to save souls. He speaks of the chief priests and the scribes. These were those who were the, who were the religious leaders who were power brokers at the time. And it says that he would be delivered into their control. He would be given over to them, to his enemies, if you will. And this is how the cross works. It doesn't always work the way disciples expect. When, they says that they, when Jesus says that they will condemn him, condemn him to death, it speaks of his trial before the Sanhedrin. It speaks of him being convicted, convicted of blasphemy. Why? Because he, in their minds, being a man, declared himself to be the Son of God, equivalent to deity. And you remember when, when he says this, that the high priest takes his garment and he rents it. He tears it. He screams, blasphemy! And then they come and they strike Jesus again and again and again. Why? For speaking truth. He experiences the cross and the cup for speaking truth in his defense. And then the religious leaders would deliver Jesus to a second group. This one's political, not religious. The Gentiles or the Romans. 
And in verse 34, we see evil unleashed upon Jesus. It says, Jesus says that they're going to mock him. They're going to take a crown of thorns and and they're going to put a a robe around him and they're going to give him a staff as a scepter and they're going to spit on him and they're going to pull out his beard according to the prophecy of Isaiah. And they're they're going to be cruel to him in order that they might be entertained by his suffering. And they're going to flog him. The idea behind the flogging of the Roman soldiers is preparation for and then kill him or crucify him. One cannot help but see the kingdom of darkness in Rome's treatment of Christ. It is above and beyond. It is evil. It is dark. It is cruel. But then Jesus speaks words of hope to his disciples. I don't know if they're prepared to receive it, but he says then after three days... He will rise. The resurrection, my friends, tonight is Jesus' vindication by the Father. It is his exoneration by God. And all who hope in him, all who trust in him, have this hope. Like I said, I'm heading up to Las Vegas for Sister Catherine's wedding. We affectionately call her Sister Catherine at her request. I don't know how many times she would call the church and pray for, you know, various things. She was a, not only a harmonica player, she was not only a, a street uh, evangelist. Uh, Sister Catherine was also somebody who enjoyed a time of prayer. And there would be those times that she would call me and she says, you know, Pastor Danny, I recognize her voice right away. She said, do you have a word for me? What she meant was, do you have a word of prophecy? Do you have a word of knowledge? Do you have a word of wisdom for me? And I think the way those gifts work, it's best to not know the need. That way, if you pray specifically to the need and you don't know about it, you just have that much more confidence that it's from God. And she would say, Pastor Danny, I'm hurting. I'm suffering. Do you have a word from the Lord for me? And I would say, actually, the majority of the time, I didn't, but something encouraging would come through a prayer, where I'd just close my eyes and hold a phone and speak words, you know, words of encouragement and scripture to her. And then she would say on the other end of the line, that did it. Thank you. Thank you. My friends, love is why Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. And because Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem, when we lose a sister in Christ, we know, we know that because of what Jesus experienced through the cross and the cup, we know Sister Catherine isn't calling anybody for a prayer request anymore. She's leaning over and saying, hey, Jesus, thank you. I know beyond the shadow of a doubt that her broken body that the aches and the pains, that the things that life had done to her are completely and totally healed. My friends, listen. She is perfected in Christ Jesus because of the cross and because of the cups. Love is why Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. He must die for our sin. No one else could. God simply could not look the other way. Clearly, Jesus died our death. On the screen, you'll see a a quote by Tim Keller. 
wonderful Presbyterian pastor who recently passed away, when he says the cross is the self-substitution of God, self-substitution of God dying for us. So next we move to the king and the cup. This is a good section of scripture where it says, and James and John, again of the inner three, the sons of Zebedee came up to him and said to him, teacher, rabbi, we want you to do Uh, to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, I used to ask this of my parents. It didn't have the same outcome as it does with Jesus. I used to come up and say, hey, mom, can we do this or can we do that? And she'd say, go tell your dad. And go ask your dad. And I go ask my dad. I go, hey, dad, mom said, mom said, kind of reworded a little bit to sound as though mom gave us her approval and just waiting was for dad to to give his stamp of approval. Didn't always work out that way, but he says, teacher, we we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and, and one at your left. Listen, 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 in your glory, in your glory. It's important to understand that. We want it to be in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. Ah, disciples. We are able. Yeah, we can do it. No problem. We got it, Jesus. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or to sit at my left uh, is not mine to grant. But it is for those, it's very interesting terminology, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. It is for those for whom, the right hand, the left hand, my friends, that it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, that is the balance of the disciples, they became, uh, began to be uh, indignant at James and John, I believe because they wanted those positions for themselves. But that's Danny's opinion. And Jesus called them, the disciples, to him, and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, that would be the pagans, lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever be first among you, that is, first in status, the highest position among you, must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. We've noted before that there were three times in Mark's gospel that Jesus referenced his death. We, we, we said that, that initially at Caesarea Philippi in Mark chapter 8, that, that, that Jesus referenced his love, and then Peter pulls him aside, and Peter begins to say, you know, this isn't going to happen. This can't happen. Literally, he was saying, I will not allow this to happen, and then Jesus rebukes him. So after the, after the first reference to his death, Peter confronts him, again, one of the inner three. And then last time in in Mark chapter 9, after Jesus references his death, John, uh, 50% of those who are uh, of the two brothers that are talking here, John comes to him and says, hey, you know, we saw somebody casting out demons, but because they weren't from our crowd, they weren't of our denomination, they weren't of our church, they weren't of our group, they weren't of our theological bent, we stopped them. And then Jesus corrects them by saying, hey, you know what? If he is advancing the kingdom, these are Danny's words, not Jesus. If he is advancing the kingdom of God in my name, then allow him, allow him to do what he's doing. Here are James and John. 
The sons of Zebedee reach for power through position, their perception of what power is. And that's what we're going to talk about for the balance of our time together, the cup, the king and the cup. Kindly, Jesus informs them that they don't really understand what their request requires, that with their request, with these two positions, something, something is required. Something is required of them. He says in verse 38, are you able to drink the cup or be that I drink or to be baptized with which I am baptized? It's important for us to know that in the minds of the disciples, Jesus is about to ascend to Israel's throne to be the king, the Messiah, to rule over the land. Their ask is equivalent to being appointed prime minister and chief of staff. Perception is that, verse 37, your glory is equivalent to prestige. As they see things, Jesus comes into power. We're a part of the inner three. Let's leave Peter out. Listen, and now is our time. As we get close to Jerusalem, it's our time to be at his right hand and his left hand. My friends, let me remind you that when he was crucified, there were two men, one to his left, one to his right, criminals. One would be in paradise in that moment at that time at his death, and the other would perish. My friends, sometimes in our prayers, we don't know what we're asking for. Jesus' teaching indicates that suffering, not power, pain, not preeminence, comes with the territory of drinking the cup. I'm wrapping up here. We're going to take communion when we finish The cup that Jesus perspired blood, that is the capillaries in his, those blood vessels near the surface of the skin that burst because of the stress of surrendering, surrendering to the Father's will, was the cup of God's judgment. We said that already. It was what is oftentimes referred to as his wrath, the judgment of sin. And Jesus would surrender to the Father's will and says, I will drink that cup. I will die for them. I will suffer the penalty of their sin. I will willingly do that because I love you and because I love them. I want you to notice, because I've talked about the cup quite a bit thus far, but I want you to notice that Jesus uses, also uses the word baptize, to be baptized in his death. And I want you to think about the following. The three years earlier, as I referenced it, he goes into the water, that he's submerged below the water. Of all the people that have ever walked the face of this planet, Jesus didn't need to be baptized. It was, it was symbolic of a, a, a really of a Gentile converting uh, to Judaism. 
They would need to be baptized. They would need to be without. Jews experience washings all the time and preparation for meals or preparation for worship or preparation for special days or to go to the temple. So to go into the baptismal and come out, that's one thing. But to go into the waters for the repentance of sin, Jesus had no need of. Matter of fact, what John said, you need to baptize me. I shouldn't be baptizing you. And yet Jesus says, let it be done. Let me... Let me associate with them. Let me connect with them. Let me eat their food. Let me drink their water. Let me perspire underneath the sun with them. Let me be with them. Let me be numbered with them. Let me be a part of their life. Let me get tired. Let me carry the stigma in in Nazareth that they figured out that my mom was pregnant before she was married. Let me carry that. Let me be a rabbi who teaches in the temple and everyone says he doesn't have the degrees. He hasn't been to our seminaries. He hasn't been a part of the structure. Let me carry that. Let me be crucified outside of the city. Let me taste that. And as he goes into the water and he comes out, Mark uses a very, very interesting term. It says that the heavens were open, but in the original language, it's more than a matter of fact. In the English ESV, it translates, it says that the heavens were torn, that they were rent, like a garment was shredded, that the, the heavens were shredded. That's what John the Baptist saw. And I want to remind you that his baptism on the cross was no different, that the baptism on the cross it wasn't the heavens. It was the garment. It was the veil that stood between, before the, the holy of holies and the holy place. And the interesting terminology in Matthew's gospel says that the veil, the veil that separated all of the people from the presence of God, that it was rent from top to bottom. Oh, my friends, it doesn't stop there. The heavens were open. That, that curtain, that veil that had embroidered upon it cherubim. These were the guardians or protectors of God's presence, of his glory. That they were embroidered on this, on this veil. That it was torn. And it takes us back to the book of Genesis where God says, I don't want man to come back into the garden. I don't want him to eat of the tree of life and forever be in this state of sinfulness. And so what did he do? He put cherubim there to guard the entrance with a flaming sword. And when he died upon the cross at 3 p.m. on that day when darkness covered the land, He cried out, it is finished. Father, into your hands I release my spirit. And so we see his spirit, if you will, in our imagination ascending up. Where in his baptism we saw the spirit coming down to anoint him and to empower him for his ministry. And at the cross, if you were to see him, he was a massive man. If you were to shake his hand, you would feel the calluses and the strength coming from his shoulder through his bicep down into his forearm as he would take your hand. And his job was to oversee and to supervise, was to oversee executions, over to see crucifixions. If he's seen one man die, he's seen a thousand men die. This was a day at work. This was punching the clock nine to five. And yet, as he stood at the foot of the cross, when he watched Jesus die, this centurion said, this, this 
was a righteous man. And so instead of the Father's word coming from heaven, it comes through this Gentile, this centurion, who God would reveal to him in that moment of Jesus' death. Let me read it to you. Mark chapter 15, I'm done. Verse 37 through 39. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. There's that word, torn, from the top to the bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw, listen, saw in the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this was the Son of God. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.